Hi, this is Jeffrey Mark, and I'm your next guest on On Screen and Beyond with Brian Zemrak. On Screen and Beyond, an inside look into the entertainment world featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now, here's the host of On Screen and Beyond, Brian Zemrak. Thank you so much for joining me for another edition of On Screen and Beyond. This is episode 495 of the weekly show that keeps you updated on what's coming your way as far as upcoming new movies, remakes, sequels, and TV and movie DVD releases, as well as our interview segment with a guest from the movie, TV, or music industry. This week on On Screen and Beyond, Jeffrey Mark joins us once again. He's back to talk about... Uh, Entertainment, all kinds of things. Of course, we'll talk about Ella, his book, and also about next year, his release of the Lucy book. And uh, he's just an in, in entertainment encyclopedia. He's got a lot of things to talk about. He's coming up in a few minutes right here on On Screen Beyond. But let's get right into it. It is time for Remake Madness right here on On Screen and Beyond. Remake Madness, it looks like the co-writer of Rogue One is working on remaking The Last Starfighter. Remember that one? And My Best Friend's Wedding is heading to the remake lineup, and this time it will be a Spanish-language version for release in Mexico in 2019. And 1985's Jagged Edge is getting remade. This time it will star Halle Berry. And that's it for Remake Madness. Next on On Screen and Beyond, it's upcoming new movies right here. Upcoming new movies, it looks like, all right, The Beatles' Yellow Submarine. It's not a new movie, but it will be returning to theaters to celebrate its 50th anniversary in July. So get ready for that to see it once again in the big screen theaters. And Kristen Bell will star in Fantasy Camp, a musical comedy, as a failed junior high teacher who faces her fears while attending a Broadway musical camp for adults. And Matthew McConaughey is set to star in White Boy Rick as he plays the father of a teenage police undercover informant who becomes a drug dealer. And that's it for upcoming new movies next on On Screen and Beyond. Taking you down to Sequel City to find out what's coming your way as far as sequels right here on On Screen and Beyond. Sequel City, as far as sequels coming your way, it looks like Charlie Theron says that they are working on Atomic Blonde 2. And Dwayne Johnson, he's letting everybody know that he is working on a sequel to the very successful Junami. Welcome to the Jungle. And, of course, Junami was a huge hit uh, that uh, people didn't think was going to be, but uh, did turn out. So it's no surprise, really, that they're going to make a sequel on that one. And... The Coming to America sequel is moving along with Eddie Murphy. And that's it for Sequel City. Next on On Screen and Beyond, what do you say we take a peek at what's coming your way as far as TV on DVD? TV on DVD, well, it looks like High Maintenance Season 2 from HBO arrives on digital download on April 20th. And on June 12th, Columbo, the complete series, will be re-released and it will include all the TV shows and 24 TV movies. And on July 10th, you can get the complete sixth and final season in a four-disc set of Green Acres, the complete sixth and final season. And uh, that's also going to have uh, 26 episodes, and that's quite a bit for one season. And that's it for TV on DVD. Next on On Screen and Beyond, what's coming your way as far as movies on DVD? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Movies on DVD, The Strangers, Pray at Night, the unrated version, will be hitting digital on May 5th, and 
Blu-ray and DVD on June 12th. And Borg and McEnroe slams into DVD and Blu-ray on July 3rd. And May 15th, you can catch Black Panther as it hits the stores. And that's it for Movies on DVD. Next on On Screen or Beyond, TV and Entertainment Time. TV and Entertainment Time. Well, what goes around comes around. Rocky and Bullwinkle will return to TV on Amazon Prime in The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle in a new modern version of the 50s and 60s cartoons. You can look for it on May 11th. Not that far away. NCIS has been renewed for a 16th season. And sadly, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest director Milos Forman has passed away at the age of 86. And that's it for TV and Entertainment Time. Next on On Screen and Beyond, it's Celebrity Birthdays. We baked you a birthday cake. If you get it to me, eh? And you moan and groan and woe. Don't forget we told you so. Happy birthday! Happy birthday! <laughs> Celebrity Birthdays. Well, it looks like on April 16th, John Cryer of Two and a Half Men turns 53. April 17th, Jennifer Gardner turns 46. On April 18th, James Woods turns 71. April 19th, Tim Curry turns 72. On April 20th, Jessica Lange turns 69. And on April 21st, Iggy Pop turns 71. And on April 22nd, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, Negan, he turns 52. And that's it for celebrity birthdays. As far as listener birthdays, we had one come in. And it is Candy T of Sydney, Australia. She turns 48 on April 19th. Happy birthday, Candy. And if you, a friend or a relative, are going to be having a birthday, send the information to me at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com, and I will get that out to everybody. So we all, all over the world, wish you a very happy birthday. And that's it for Celebrity and Listener Birthdays. Next on On Screen and Beyond, Jeffrey Mark is returning. That's right. Jeffrey is going to be telling us all kinds of stuff about entertainment. He's next. Jeffrey Mark, right here on On Screen and Beyond. Today's guest on On Screen and Beyond returns for a second visit to chat about his book about Lucy, Ella Fitzgerald, his upcoming East Coast tour, and so much more. He's known as the walking encyclopedia of show business history. It's Jeffrey Mark. Jeffrey, welcome to On Screen and Beyond again. Brian, you always flatter me so much, and don't ever stop. <laughs> I love being on with you, and I'm so happy to be able to do it again. Well, I appreciate appreciate it very much, and uh, uh, you've got so much going on, and, and you've got so much stuff stored in your head that <laughs> we want to try to get as much as we can out of you. <laughs> it's a good time in my life, you know, and for all of our friends out there who are listening to this, everybody, whether you're a celebrity or you're not a celebrity or you're not in show business, you're in show business. We have seasons in our lives. It could be a day, it could be an hour, it could be a year where sometimes things just aren't working too well. And sometimes we have a season where just everything really is coming up roses. Thank you, Ethel Merman. I'm going through one of those seasons. Uh, My book, uh, let me plug it, Ella, a biography of a legendary Ella Fitzgerald, is flying off the shelves. It's getting great reviews. I've lost 84 pounds. Wow. Uh, I'm heading in the next week or so back east to sing in Baltimore and New York. Uh, I just celebrated uh, a few weeks ago, 29 years being clean and sober. I am just in a good time of my life. Congratulations. And I think people need to hear that, that we all get that. Every once in a while, we just get a season where things are working well, and I'm having one of those. That's great, Jeffrey. And uh, now, uh, you, you talked about Ella just a little bit there, but just like to, you, you say everything is going good with it, uh, the, the oh, book absolutely. about Ella? Great, great. It's a, it's a fascinating book, and, and she's such a, a, a I mean, it's Ella. <laughs> Wait, what else can I say? <laughs> Well, and it's, it's so satisfying for me because I'm not doing just book signings. Everywhere I'm going, I'm singing. Mm-hmm. And I'm singing out of Ella's canon to her original arrangements. 
I'm not imitating her in any way. I'm I'm being Jeffrey Mark. This is how I sing. Mm -hmm. But just to be able to meet the fans and to to meet her fans, my fans, fans of jazz, fans of the Great American Songbook, which Ellen named that whole idea of the Great American Songbook. I think we talked about this last time. Mm -hmm. Started with Ella sings the Cole Porter Songbook. Ella sings the Irving Berlin Songbook. Mm -hmm. And to be able to bring this music right to the people, uh, the input I'm getting is, and of course, I'm not Ella Fitzgerald. Nobody is Ella Fitzgerald. But they say, at least we can get a taste of what it might have been like to hear these arrangements being played live and having someone singing live to them. Mm-hmm. It's just so much fun for everybody. Yeah. So now you said you're going to be heading out to your East Coast tour, and you're going to be in yes, Baltimore sir. and New York. I'll be in Baltimore on Ella's birthday, ah. April 25th. I'm singing at Germano's in uh, downtown Baltimore, and I can't wait to be there because I spent a good deal of my childhood in Baltimore County, so there'll be a lot of old friends there. I'm also doing a private show. It's, it's one of those things that happens. A dear friend of mine's parents were in a very upscale um, independent living center for people who are elderly but have a few dollars. And her mother just loves Ella Fitzgerald. So I arranged to perform there as well. And as we speak, her mother passed away this morning. But we talked to the family and talked to the place, and they said, no, we want, she'd want the show to go on. So I'll be singing there as well uh, that Saturday night. And then on uh, Sunday the 29th, I'll be in New York City. I am thrilled for this, singing at the Triad Theater. So those of you who are near Baltimore or New York, there are tickets available, and uh, I can't wait to be with you. Hmm. Now, give us an idea of what the program is. Is it strictly Ella Fitzgerald music, or do you bounce around with other things that you're putting in? No, no, I figure, you know, I'm promoting a book on Ella Fitzgerald. Mm -hmm. I've had a lifetime of singing other things. For this tour, uh, we're doing just from Ella's canon. Mm-hmm. So we're singing things that Ella herself liked to sing live. So I've chosen things that you might have heard on a live album, or if you'd seen Ella in the 60s or 70s or 80s in a live concert, you might have heard one of these songs. Mm-hmm. And uh, it depends on the venue, quite frankly. I don't mean to get technical with our friends out there. There are places where they say, you know, go on for two hours. We don't care. Then I do, you know, nine or ten songs and really tell stories from the book, stories about the music I'm singing. In nightclubs, they pretty much want you to do an hour and ten minutes, maybe answer some questions and and sign some books. So in the nightclubs, I'll be doing a shorter show, meaning I'll probably sing a few less songs and have to shorten the stories up. But I'll go on for as long as... uh, anybody lets me. Uh, Brian knows this when he has me on his show. It's like, well, I've got five hours for you, Brian. How much do you want? (laughs) I love to perform. I think all of us in the business who perform or write, we love doing what we're doing. And and anytime we get a chance to do it, we're having a great time. So I love being with Brian. Because guys, when, when you're promoting a book, this is just show business insider stuff. When you're promoting a book like I am right now, I'll do maybe a hundred of these shows over the course of three or four months, maybe more, plus television. And everybody is very nice. Nobody is bad at this. But then there are the people who are really good at it, who make you feel comfortable, who ask intelligent questions, who make their show better. Brian is one of those. And that's why anytime Brian wants me on, I'll be there. So I'm, I'm just really happy to be here today. Well, that's nice of you to say. Uh, now, when you are in the venues, are they, uh, you know, large venues or are they, they intimate ones? Uh, I mean, I know the, the nursing facility, that uh, I'm sure that's not huge, but uh, some of the other ones, are they more intimate than the, than the bigger places? I'm not performing at Carnegie Hall mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> or the Hollywood Bowl. So no, I'm not, I'm not performing in an arena where there's 10,000 people. Right. You perform in places where there's, you know, a couple of hundred people or mm-hmm. 125 people or 80 people. Yeah, those are the uh, better ones, I think. Well, I'm happy to do both. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, you have to sort of pivot. You have to 
the way you perform and the way you reach the people is different. And Ella did this. Ella sang in little nightclubs where there are 60 people sometimes, mm-hmm. and she did sing for 10,000 people, 50,000 people. And when you do it, you have to change your repertoire a little bit and what you're saying. There's a difference between a nightclub performance and a street concert. In a nightclub, people are drinking liquor, they're eating, they're there to have a good time and be entertained by you, but they're there to have a good time and be entertained by you. They're going to talk among themselves. I probably do less talking and more singing in a nightclub. When it's a concert setting, like at the uh, independent living home, no one's drinking, nobody's eating. I'm basically doing a concert. Mm -hmm. I have the time, the space to do more talking, to tell stories. I like to think I'm a pretty good storyteller. I, I wouldn't be an author otherwise. All right. <laughs> uh, so, so it just depends, and I'm happy to do both. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, before we go too far into uh, Lucy and, and and different things like that, I, I wanted to, uh, to ask you a question because I was looking at more information about you, and uh, like I'm I say, in trouble now. <laughs> No, but but sometimes you see things on the internet, and then you know I ask the person, and they say, "No, nah, that, that's not true." But is it true that you were a witness to the John Lennon shooting? That is true. Wow, that must have been horrible. It's there's a little bit of Forrest Gump in me, in that I have been a few times, depending on how you want to look at it, either at the right place at the right time or the right place at the wrong time. Uh, where I have witnessed history. And uh, this is one of those occasions where, uh, for those of you who live in New York City, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, Mr. Lennon lived in the Dakota apartment building, which is almost like a complex on 72nd Street right off of Central Park. And my sister from another mister, someone I have been friends with since I'm a kid, I'm the godfather of her sons, was yet to be married and living on 72nd Street. And I was coming to visit her to have a late dinner because there was a restaurant in her apartment building. And the subway took me to 72nd Street in Central Park West and dumped me off there. And her building was diagonally across the street. And I always went to the Dakota and then crossed diagonally over to her building. And as I was there, bang, bang, bang. Wow. That must have been horrifying. It was confusing more than horrifying. The Dakota apartment building then, now they've changed it since Mr. Lennon was shot. The front door is not on the street. There was an archway through which you walked into this sort of open-air patio area. I don't know what else to call it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there was a front door with a with a, uh, a doorman, 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. I didn't go into the courtyard. That's the word I was groping for. I didn't go into the courtyard. I was standing in the archway. Mr. Lennon was shot in the courtyard. So I wasn't quite sure what was going on because it was dark out. Yeah. I knew I heard shots. I wasn't quite sure what it was I was witnessing until I got to, I'll give her a plug, Phyllis's apartment, and turn the TV on. And they, you know, then I immediately knew what was going on, because by the time I'd crossed the street, they were stopping all the television shows in New York to say that he'd been shot. Mm-hmm. And then Jeez. I know, okay, that's what I saw in the darkness Jeez. and heard. Huh. But I was standing right there. It's just one of those things. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's incredible. Jeez. I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, you must have been a fan of John Lennon. I would imagine. As was Ella. As as everybody was. <laughs> no, I'm very very serious. Ella Fitzgerald uh, was very wise about the Beatles' music. Mm-hmm. She loved the beat, and she always stayed in touch with what was current in music. And Ella was the first person to do a cover version of a Beatles song. Really? She did a big band arrangement of Can't Buy Me Love. And do you know that she had a top 40 hit with it? 
In she fact, just... Ringo Starr says it's his favorite version of the song. Wow. And, and Ella went on to record um, It's Been a Hard Day's Night and a couple of other Beatles tunes in the studio. Uh, later on in the 60s, as their music began to change. So uh, everybody, good music is good music, no matter what kind of music you may personally like. Exactly. In any category, good music is good music. Mm -hmm. And even in rap and hip-hop, which I don't particularly care for, but when I at least hear brilliant words being put together, I may not want to buy the music or listen to it, but I can, hey, whoever wrote those words is very talented, and mm. I can recognize the talent. Ella immediately saw the talent in John Lennon and Paul McCartney, and and, and in uh, Ringo and, and in George, because she recorded their music too. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Gee. So uh, that's, 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 that's a fascinating story. Oh, boy. Um... There's very little you'll find out about me online that isn't true. I'm an open book. I, I, like, I can't lie about my age. I can't lie about my background. So much has been written that at this point to lie would be kind of silly because it's the 21st century and you can go online and check this stuff out. So mm -hmm. I, I call myself um, unblackmailable <laughs> because there's no secrets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know how the Internet is. People will you know, make stories up about people. And, and yes. so you never know. So I always like to ask, especially things that are, I mean, that is a story. I mean, that's, uh, that's, well, not I mean, everybody there's, was... there's another story going around right now about me and I cannot say it's not true. It is true. Uh, someone found out in an interview because they asked a pointed question and I had to answer honestly that I knew Freddie Mercury of Queen. Uh, in an intimate fashion. Mm -hmm. Well, I can't say no, I didn't. Yes, I did. <laughs> so you have two scoops today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. So in your career, have you, have you met a lot of different artists over the years? Oh, Had you met the Beatles before at all? You know? I, I, I have been in the same room with Sir Paul, and uh -huh. I have been in the same room with Ringo. Is Ringo a Sir yet? I'm, yeah, he was yes, just Yes, just recently. Sir Paul and Sir Ringo I've been in the same room with. Uh, I ran into John and Yoko in New York in the 70s, but to say that any of us are friends would be hmm. way beyond any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. I have met these people. I never got to meet George. Uh, to meet them. Yeah. Now, there's hundreds and hundreds of celeb celebrated people I've met, but I'm very fortunate. There are quite a few famous people who have become friends, and I'm very, very blessed. Who's the most fascinating person that you feel you've met? Hmm. You ask a good question. Be and I, you know, it's a funny thing. I don't know why I was thinking about this last night. I was, I, I was preparing to go to bed. If someone asked me, <laughs> who was the funniest person? You've gotten to know personally, mm -hmm. and I, I kept it to uh, comedians. And I thought, well, you know, how do you contrast and compare Milton Berle with Jonathan Winters, with Mel Brooks, wow. with Phyllis Diller, <laughs> with uh, Pat Harrington, with or Jack Riley? Uh, each, in their own way, are brilliant. Oh yeah, and they were all dear friends of mine. Hmm. Uh, who did I love the most of them all? Jack Riley. Jack Riley uh, played Mr. Carlin on the Bob Newhart show. He was in an, every Mel Brooks film. Mm -hmm. um, he and I were, a, watch your words, Jeffrey Mark, about <laughs> as close as two men can be, and I'll leave it there. <laughs> um, it doesn't mean that Jack was the funniest guy I knew. Mm -hmm. He's the person whose company I enjoyed the most. Mm -hmm. Milton Berle is kind of hard to beat. His... His knowledge of show business history, which is why we became friends, uh, was over lunch one day at the Friars Club. Jack Carter, another brilliant mentor of mine. Steve mm -hmm. Allen, another brilliant mentor of mine. Jeez. Uh, Jack took me to the Friars Club to meet Milton. And Milton loved, lived and breathed, like Ella did, show business. And he warmed up to young people who also loved it and had no patience for those who didn't. 
And I took a chance. We were introduced. We're sitting down at lunch. And my opening line to him was, on March 22nd, 1949, in your first season of the Texaco Star Theater, Ethel Merman had just finished being in Annie Gutcher Gun on Broadway and made her television debut on your show. And the two of you did this sketch about, and he cut me off, and he said, how the hell do you know that? <laughs> I said, Mr. Burrow, I not only know it, I have a copy of the show. And he kind of, his eyes kind of, glared at me for half a second. He said, I don't have a copy of that show. Wow. I said, you do now. <laughs> and he just pointed his finger at me and he said, you know things. Now I'm going to tell you some real stories. <laughs> that was it. We were friends. Wow. Uh, but again, that's different than sitting at dinner with Jonathan Winters and not being able to breathe because he is riffing for an hour. Mm-hmm on whatever popped into his brilliant mind. Yeah, he was just... You know, or you'd go to Steve Allen's office, like I would often do, and just hang out with him when he had time for that, and just throw concepts at each other, because his mind was so fast, and he knew so much about so many different things, that anything I could bring up, he had some information, and then it was my turn, he'd bring up stuff to see what I knew, uh, I'm a I'm a very blessed man that these people recognized whatever talents it is that I have and nurtured them, helped me to nurture my own talents. Uh, Jane Meadows was Steve's wife and mm-hmm. uh, a beautiful woman and had her own lovely career. She she passed a couple of years ago, and we were at a show business function together. And I don't know how the subject came up, but Jane and her, their son, Bill, was there. And she was asking him, whatever happened to, in a quick story, Steve in the 1940s had the only real interview with Al Jolson ever done that was recorded. Wow. And they made a record of it. And she was asking Bill, whatever happened to the, the test pressing, the original pressing made? And I turned to Jane and I said, I have it. Steve gave it to me as a gift. And she was going to say something, and I saw her change her mind, and she said, you know what, it's in good hands. And she started to walk away and then turned back and grabbed my arm, and she said, Jeffrey, you know, you're not the biggest star Steve ever discovered, but you were the last one. Now, I'm not a star, period. It was lovely of her to use that expression with me. Uh, am I a celebrity? Probably at this point. Uh, a star. A star is a big word. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how lovely of her yeah. to say that to me. And I was the last one. I was the last younger talent that Steve nurtured. And it breaks my heart. We had made plans. He had about 30 or 40 tunes he had written that he wanted me to put lyrics to. He wanted to put an album together of music by him and lyrics by me. And he died about five days later. And Jane just said, I don't have the heart for this. And it never happened. But can you imagine being able to do that? Oh, yeah. I mean, to collaborate with somebody like that. Or to sit down with Bob Schiller, one of the original I Love Lucy writers, and write comedy with him. Hmm. You know, so to sit down with William Asher one of the directors of I Love Lucy and Mm -hmm. producer and director of Bewitched and the Beach Blanket movies and work with him. Uh, It's hard to pick out, like, what's the biggest thrill or who's the biggest one or what's the biggest star. Um, I've been a really, really, really lucky man, Brian. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... To, to be able to, to, you know, first off, just to meet those people, for one thing, and then to uh, actually have a chance to work with some of them is incredible. You know, to have Phyllis Diller take me out for my birthday, <laughs> to have Carol Channing take me out for my birthday and kiss me, you, you, you treasure these things. These people are so, isn't that they're so famous? That does not get me all hot and bothered, that they're so talented. Mm, Yes, definitely. You know, to spend two hours in Mary Martin's dressing room, literally sitting at her feet while she makes tea for me and lets me interview her. How do you beat that? Mm -hmm. 
Well, you be that by meeting somebody else. Um, I've been around a long time, obviously. I'm, I'm talking about many people who are no longer with us. Right. But I've been blessed. Uh, a lot of hard work, because if I didn't have the knowledge and didn't have the talent and didn't work so hard, I wouldn't have the chance to meet these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've been lucky. I've been a lucky, hardworking according to Jane Meadows, a star. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned Phyllis Diller, and uh, there's a movie that I wrote, uh, an animated movie that's still in the process now. Uh, it was, <laughs> It's a long story, but anyways, uh, Phyllis was actually going to do one of the voices on it, and then uh, th- that's how long ago this was, and then she ended up... Um, I think she fell or something and, yeah. and, and broke her hip or something, and... and she wasn't able to do it, so we ended up having to get uh, some other people. But uh, I, I was that close. To, <laughs> to, I mean, the thrill of, of, of working with her would have been amazing, but uh, I, I didn't get the opportunity. But I was close. It, and it, I, I will tell you, it would have been a thrill. Oh, yeah. There was one year, Phyllis and Jack Riley took me out for my birthday. And we went, uh, there, was a, there was a jazz club in Glendale, California, where our friend Jack Sheldon, the wonderful trumpeter, yes. was playing. And I often sang with Jack, you know, would just step in and do a song or two with him. Wow. But this night was just for dinner. And Phyllis showed up. It was, well, my birthday's in September, and it's probably 90 degrees outside out here in September. Mm-hmm. And she was in a full-length mink coat as she came in the restaurant <laughs> and sat down. Now, I don't know how much she'd had to drink before she got to me. She was in no way inebriated, but I could tell, but drank while we were having dinner, four double martinis. Wow. (laughs) And at the end of the evening, she seemed no more intoxicated than she was before the evening started. Hmm. And I thought, this woman is, I guess then she was in her late 80s, how could she possibly be doing this? How can she drink like that, not slur a word, not forget what she's saying, not in any way act inebriated, and I thought, wow, this is a talent I didn't know. Yeah. But huh. good heavens, she was funny. Uh, the stuff she does at a table, very different from what she did on television, because I had to be clean. Right. <laughs> but privately, I can't repeat any of it. <laughs> uh, because I wouldn't do that kind of material, and because I'm not Phyllis Diller. Mm-hmm. I've learned, uh, trying to tell other people's jokes, don't bother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but trust me, folks. Had you been sitting there, you would have been on the floor laughing. I'm sure. I, I don't know. You know, when somebody like that, and you mentioned Jonathan Winters, it, who who Robin Williams reminds uh, you know me of of him because of his uh, his mind just keeps going and going and going. And, and Jonathan was the same way. And it was like, you know, how do these people the, the energy they have built into them? It's it's incredible. Well, you pay a price for that, you know. Hmm. Let me tell you, folks, we, we read a lot about celebrities, stars, celebrities, at whatever level they happen to be. But it seems uh, especially the, the great actors, the singers who last a long time, the comedians, we keep reading about troubled personal lives, mental illness, drug addiction, alcoholism. I, I honestly believe... There is a price to pay for being greatly talented. Mm, yeah. um, you have very few peers. You have very few people who understand you, who get you as a person. People expect you to constantly be on. People think you're wealthy when maybe you only work three or four times a year, mm-hmm. but it's very public what you're doing, so they think you're bloated. Yeah. Uh, and you, you don't know the price in people's personal lives. I paid a price in mine for whatever talent I have, and you know what? It's worth it for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've stood next to Robin Williams and John doing rips back and forth. Yes. <laughs> but but Jonathan spent several long stretches in mental hospitals. Yeah. And Robin, bless his heart, was haunted by mental illness. Mm-hmm. And his ending was just tremendously sad for the people who knew him and loved him personally. Uh, I don't know 
for them, if the price to pay was worth it for their brilliant, brilliant talent, mm-hmm. I, I, only they could tell you that. Yeah. But yeah. when you when you're next to them, when you spend time with them, you 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 you, you notice, ah, they're paying a price. Yeah. I've, I've had the opportunity to meet several celebrities, and there's some who seem to be on all the time, and and they then there's others who are I don't want to say normal because you know I mean, but uh, uh, you use the N word. Don't do that. <laughs> but I mean, uh, some of the people are uh, what you see on TV, but then behind the scenes, you see them as you know. Everybody else, there. Some are like that, but then there's some who seem to be putting on that show constantly, and it's like, how can you do that? I mean, it's just, just it, like you say, it must be very taxing on you to do that. Well, for some people, it is a way of hiding who they are. Mm-hmm. They're not even sure, perhaps, who they are. So there's a public persona, and we, you know, we all have one. You're talking to Jeffrey Mark. This is my public persona. Hopefully, the stories I'm telling and sharing with you and our friends today are, are, are entertaining people. Now, if, if you and I were sitting having dinner, the conversation might go differently. Mm-hmm. There are people who just cannot stop. And there are other people, and Lucille Ball is a good example. When she was in front of a camera, in front of an audience, working with a script and being brilliantly funny, she was playing a character. But when she was, the lights were turned off and the audience wasn't there, she was Lucille, not Lucy, and a completely different human being who wasn't always funny, always on, not scatterbrained. She was nothing like the characters she played. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what you learn by spending time with these people is there's the public persona. Right. Shelley Berman, brilliant comedian, mm-hmm. dear friend. But when you sat and talked with him at dinner, it wasn't one story, one joke after another. I saw Shelley cry at dinner over something. Hmm. They're so, human beings. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so are we. Yeah. Now, so you, are we. Now, you, you mentioned Lucy. Uh, so I take it that you, you, you actually knew Lucy. I had the privilege of interviewing her once mm-hmm. at length, and it was a privilege uh, I I know her children better. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And like I was telling you before we got on the air, uh, Lucy Arnez has uh, been a, a guest on our show. Just a, a a very lovely woman. Yes, she is a lovely woman. I don't just mean like isn't she sweet, but she cares about the world. She cares about things political. I won't share what her politics are because it's none of your business unless she chooses to share right, it with exactly. you. Right, exactly. But whatever she believes in, she's passionate about. She gives her time and her money towards. She gives her time and her money towards. I can't count the numbers of charities. And she's a good friend to people. I will personally vouch for that. That in my lifetime, when she knows, when she finds out that. I've stubbed my toe big time, had a tragedy, something has happened. Immediately I hear from her, how can I help? Wow. Or here's a piece of advice, or let me arrange something for you. Hmm. You know, we don't have dinner every week, but when I need her, she's there. That says so much about a person. Oh, yeah. Above and beyond her being beautiful and incredibly talented and... Anytime you guys have a chance to go see her in concert, you will have a big, 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 big treat. Uh, so please, spend your money. She's absolutely worth it. She has a new <laughs> album out uh, of her live performances. Go get it. We didn't plan this in advance. I'm not chilling for her. I'm just telling you, you're going to love Lucy's CD. Go get mm-hmm. it. And her brother, Desi, is brilliant in mind and uh, a fascinating person to have dinner with. Again, to discuss anything, any concept, he, these are not shallow people. They live in the world and do their best to try to understand it and make sense for themselves. So 
So they're just lovely persons, mm -hmm. besides their extraordinarily good looks and talent. <laughs> Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Now, when you wrote the book about Lucy, I, I'm guessing that you probably communicated a lot with them, Desi and Lucy. Uh, again, I'm a blessed man. Uh, the book we're talking about, folks, was called The Lucy Book. I wrote it quite a while ago, uh, more than 10 years ago. And it was a, a, a look, an in-depth look, at every single time Lucille Ball was on television, from early live days before I Love Lucy to the day she died and after. And uh, the reason we talk about it now, other than everybody loves Lucille Ball, is uh, there's going to be a new version coming out next year called The New Lucy Book, and we're adding in all of her radio shows that exist, because I can't talk about things I've never heard, mm -hmm. uh, a listing of her movies. Hopefully there's room to do more, because the book is over 400 pages now, and her Broadway show, Wildcat. So we're expanding it to really have it be your one-stop shopping center for Miss Ball's career. So to answer your question, yes, I had to interview everybody who was still alive mm -hmm. through the years I was working on it then and now. You know, her hair, her hairstylist, her her costumers, her co-stars, her writers, her directors, her producers, her editors, guest stars who were on the shows. So yes, both Lucy Arnaz and Desi Arnaz Jr. were extraordinarily uh, kind to me, supportive of me, uh, generous with me. They really wanted this kind of book written. So much had been written about their parents' personal lives. And so much of what had been written were lies or stretched truths mm -hmm. that led you to believe something that wasn't actually true. Right. And there were stories about the shows that weren't true. So I set out to say, no, you know what? The reason any of us loves Lucy, quote-unquote, is not her personal life, because Miss Ball's personal life, quite frankly – other than the famous people she met, you know, getting to know presidents and things, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. But outside of that, go to any home in your neighborhood, folks, and ring the doorbell and get a family together. And then inject them with sodium pentothal so they'll tell you the truth. <laughs> and have them tell you the stories of their lives, and they won't be any less interesting than Miss Balls was. Hmm. Her personal life just isn't that her personal life. It's just not that interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, Mr. Arnez's is. Desi Sr.'s life was more because he came from uh, almost royalty in Cuba. Oh, really? And the, the people he was related to, one grandfather was the co-founder of the Bacardi Rum Factory. Another grandfather was a doctor. Wow. One, his father was the mayor and then governor of the area. Uh, an uncle was the chief of police. And they lost all of this in a revolution and were forced to come to this country. And look what Desi did with his life. Right. So at least his childhood, there are very colorful stories. Yeah. But I, I don't know quite why we're interested, when we say people's personal lives, especially their sex lives. Most people's sex lives, they exist because they have children. We know they exist. Right. <laughs> But, but there's nothing all that remarkable about it. You know, it's it's the same. It's like, tell me about your breathing. Tell me about your eating. Well, it's like everybody else is more or less. Uh, but what makes a person the kind of person they are, that's an interesting story. Mm -hmm. I, I, I hope with my Ella book, I have brought you not just an encyclopedia of Ella's work, but really brought the woman to you. And in the same way, uh, I, I don't go into Miss Ball's life. There's a chapter in the book that's, auto, that's biographical. I'll give you a chapter to give you the background. 
But I bring you, why was she the kind of performer she was? And what kind of performer she was? And what was it like to be on the set? How was all of this magic put together? So hopefully that's what I bring with that book. Yeah, well, a lot of us, I mean, most people, I think everybody, knows Lucy as being funny, you know, a comedian. Uh, Yes. But... She actually did do some movies that were not necessarily a, you know, funny comedy like she, you know, we all remember her for. She did some some serious roles. Miss Miss Ball uh, appeared in, and the number isn't exact, but just to round it her off, about 70 films before I Love Lucy. Wow. And of the 70 films... Oh, golly, I am guessing maybe 15 or 18 of them were comedies. Mm -hmm. She did heavy, heavy dramas. She did soap operas, meaning, you know, romantic, oh, my broken heart, oh, it's all, you know, that kind of thing. Um, She was in the Three Stooges short. Really? (laughs) She was in Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies in small parts. Uh... She did a little bit of everything. She she sang a little bit. Mostly she was dubbed, but she was in musicals. She did dance and danced well. Uh, she wasn't Ginger Rogers. She wasn't Ann Miller, but she could dance well. Hmm. Uh, she was in. She did a western. She she did what everybody did back then, which is you, you did what the studios gave you to do. Right. You didn't choose them yourself. Studio you system. But they gave you. Right. You were under contract. They paid you so many dollars a week, and you showed up every Monday and did what they told you to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after I Love Lucy and during I Love Lucy, she did both comedies and, you know, The Facts of Life with Bob Hope is a story of two upper middle class suburbanites having an affair, hmm. which is both funny and tragic. Yeah. Uh, her last thing that she did for television where she played a bag lady. There there is no comedy in that. Mm -hmm. So when Miss Ball was, uh, the word comedian I don't think really applies to her. Comedian implies that if you handed Miss Ball a microphone, she could get up and do 20 minutes. Right. No, she couldn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, Miss Ball was not a joke teller. She wasn't really a storyteller. She wasn't a stand-up anything. What she was was a brilliant actress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, brilliant in any area. And in comedy, especially good with delivering a line in a funny way. So not just saying funny things, but saying things funny. Mm-hmm. And brilliant with physical slapstick comedy. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> But she did so much else besides. Right. But we, but it just sticks in our mind, you know, because of I Love Lucy. I mean... Yes. People forget that Miss Ball was 40 years old already when I Love Lucy started. And she was in show business since she was a teenager. She, she'd been over 20 years in the business already by that point. Jeez. And uh, had been a model, had been a poster girl, had been a chorus girl and got fired from those things because she wasn't good enough to be a chorus girl. Mm-hmm. But but she'd been around a long time. So she brought decades of not just her own talent, but decades of experience to I Love Lucy. <laughs> and then Jess Oppenheimer, who was the creator and the producer, and Miss Ball and Mr. Arnez surrounded themselves with a hundred of about the best possible people their director of photography was a man who practically invented the cinema, Carl Freund. Genius makeup, genius hairstyling, genius. They, they, they created a way to edit these shows that were done live on film. So it, she, she knew enough to surround herself with the best. And it shows. Yeah. Every dollar they spent on these people shows on camera. Now, you you can probably give us a little more information on, on this topic. Uh, they formed uh, Desilu Studios, 
and and just common knowledge, but a lot of people may not know. And I always like to try to bring something to you know let people know something they may not know. Uh, but they are the ones who brought us Star Trek, correct? Well, let's let's singularize that to Ms. Ball did. They didn't. I have to tell a little story here. Sure. You're, 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 what you're saying is right, almost. Well, that's why I figured you could give us the inside <laughs> scoop. <laughs> okay, Lucy Geeks, listen up. So this is the story. When the Arnezes were going to do I Love Lucy, the people who bought the show, in those days, one sponsor bought a show. They bought the Time on the Network. So thus and such sponsor presents... This show. Well, the thus and thus the thus and such sponsor was Philip Morris Cigarettes. And they assumed the Arnezes were going to fly to New York and do the show live in New York because there was no um, across the country television yet. You couldn't broadcast yet. I know I know it's young people, I know you're saying, <laughs> What do you mean you couldn't do it? There was no way to relay a show across the country. You couldn't do it. Videotape had not yet been invented, and the only other thing you could do was point a special kind of 16-millimeter film camera at a special kind of monitor so you wouldn't get a flutter, and film a live show, and then mail that film, once it had been developed, across the country and show it in other places. (laughs) But more, it's always about money. There were more smokers east of the Mississippi in those days than west of the Mississippi, and they wanted the best possible uh, quality for the East Coast because that's where the money was. And Mr. Arnaz said, no, we took this thing so we could raise a child. They had just had Lucy Arnaz in our ranchita in the San Fernando Valley and be at home. That's why we did this. They were taking a pay cut to do these things. She was a big movie star. He was a big band leader all over the country. Right. And they said, we can't do that. Miss Ball must be in front of a live audience. And then Desi said, well, what if we film it in front of a live audience? And they said, what is that? That's never been done. Mr. Arnaz is giving credit for having created it. The credit should be that he thought of it. And then, he and Jess Oppenheimer hired 100 incredible people to make that happen. So they started Desilu Productions mm-hmm. because they had to pay the difference in cost each week. It came out of their salaries. Wow. Because it was more expensive to do it this way than do live television. Mm-hmm. So for getting a lower salary, they got to own the shows. So they called it Desilu Productions. And then they began filming commercials for other shows. Then they began filming other sitcoms in the same way. And they rented space. Eventually, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz bought RKO Studios. RKO had already purchased the Selznick Studios uh, in Culver City. So by purchasing RKO, they also bought Selznick and they had also bought the original smaller studio in which I Love Lucy was filmed. So with one swipe of the pen, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz outrightly owned the world's largest movie studio. Wow, I didn't realize that. That was in 1957. In 1962, five years later, the Arnazes were divorced, and they had it in their contract that should something happen where their marriage did not last, one could buy the other out at whatever the prevailing prices were. Mm-hmm. And Miss Ball exercised that right and bought Mr. Arnez out, and then she became the president of Desi Lu Studios, which was floundering, because anyone who watches any kind of television knows, even in the 21st century, tastes change. Mm-hmm. Five years ago, what's Netflix? Today, no one's watching anything else. In five years, who knows what we'll be doing. Right. So the sitcoms that were the bread and butter of Desi Lu's productions weren't selling like they had been, at least not by Ms. Ball. But they came up with 
three pretty good dramas, Star Trek, Mission Impossible, and Mannix. See, I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't know I didn't know about Mannix or Mission Impossible. Yes. So if you would like to see the Arnez family uh, squelch heartburn, mention Mission Impossible or Star Trek to them because Ms. Ball sold the studio out in 1967 and it all became part of Paramount, which was next door to them on the same street. Mm-hmm. Had she not sold the Arnezes would be personally worth billions with a B, like a boy, sure. billions of dollars. <laughs> um, so, you know, sometimes you make a good decision and sometimes you don't. But wow. uh, all of that was the original work. Uh, Mr. Arnez was no longer around for Star Trek and Mission Impossible. But I will tell you that Miss Ball did not make very many business decisions without running it by him first, hmm. long after they were divorced. Uh, they were in touch. So they brought us an awful lot of entertainment. I mean, if you add on I Love Lucy and Star Trek and Mission Impossible, just those three, it it boggles the mind how many millions and millions of people have watched these things. And some of them are still making versions of them now. And will continue to. And I, I predict that someday they're going to colorize all of I Love Lucy, and we're going to see it back on the air again. Mm-hmm. Now, with Lucy being the head of the studio, that must have been, she must have been one of the first women to be in charge of a studio, I would think, wasn't it? The first. Yeah, I mean, I mean back then, that was probably unheard of. To, 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 to own it in the beginning, eventually they sold stock, so she didn't own all of it, mm-hmm. but uh, to own it. And then once Mr. Arnez retired from being a, the, the, the head, because she was the vice president, uh, she was the first female president. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> she, she was so innovative, so far ahead of what, you know, even today, it's, it's still unusual. I mean, you know, really. Well, you know, it was innovative that she did it. I don't think she sat down and said, well, gee whiz, they were kind of, I can get my hair done, I can take my daughter to the zoo, or I can start the big, no. She didn't plan to be the first woman who. It just worked out that way. They did not, when I Love Lucy started, have any idea of owning a studio, never mind the studio where both Lucille and Mr. Arnez had once been contract players. It wasn't this burning desire. It's just circumstances. How do you end up being there when John Lennon is murdered? It's circumstantial. Mm-hmm. Their owning this was almost as circumstantial as that. Right place, right time, right set of circumstances. Yeah. Well, Jeffrey, I know we're getting close to what the, the time I have, but um, I do want to ask you, uh, this is always a bad question, <laughs> but, but do you have a favorite episode of I Love Lucy or any of the, I mean, yes, any, any version of, I, of Lucy, that, I mean, all the different shows she had? My favorite episode, and it's not the one that comes to mind. It's not Vitamin to Vegemin. It's, it's not the Chocolate Factory. It's not the Grape <laughs> Stomping. Those are the three everybody shouts out at once. Right. My favorite episode is called Lucy's Showbiz Swan Song. It's the one, while she was pregnant with Desi Jr., where they do the barbershop quartet. Oh, and the they... reason it's my favorite <laughs> is if you watch it from beginning to end, I think it is the most perfect of the episodes. There were other episodes where she did a piece of shtick that might have been funnier. But what led up to it, although very funny... Uh, you know, it's kind of it goes along and then it hits this big crescendo of laughs. This one is just laughter from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Just it was perfectly crafted, perfectly edited, perfectly performed. Go back and watch it. The one where she sings "Sweet Adeline." I was I was just going to say it's "Sweet Adeline." They sang, was it? <laughs> yes, and it's not, and it's by the way, "Sweet Adeline," not "Sweet Adoline," like the way she sings it. Right. <laughs> Before you cut me off, because I know we're getting almost to the end of the show, <laughs> let me plug the book again. Definitely. Ella, a biography of the legendary Ella Fitzgerald, is available at Amazon.com in its original version and the deluxe version, which has two CDs of music in it. One all studio, one all live, 
from Ella's entire career, from the late 30s to 1990, it's the only place you can buy a collection that has a little bit of everything. And let me plug that I'm going to be in Baltimore at Germano's on April 25th. I'm going to be in New York City at the Triad Theater on Sunday the 29th, and I'd love my local friends to come out and come see me, and I'll be selling books and autographing them and singing. And I hope you'll enjoy it, and I hope you'll come out and say hello. Well, Jeffrey, I know the last time you were on the show, and I do this every time, I ask people what their favorite movies and TV shows are. But, of course, you, you already told us that. But since we've talked, it's been, what, a month or two? Yeah. Um, it, it, what are you watching right now? What are you watching on TV? I am watching uh, Santa Clarita Diet. I just finished season two of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't usually care for these zombie undead things. I just think it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But, but it is so brilliantly written and acted. Uh, I really highly recommend it. It's 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 my new favorite sitcom. It's so darkly funny. But everybody who's in it is good. And again, there isn't a wasted word. There isn't an, you know, sparse writing is good writing. And nothing anyone says has too many words, too few words. It's exactly the way it should be. So the writers are excellent. Every actor is excellent. The leads are wonderful. I I, I don't have anything to do with the show. So this is not, uh, no payback for this. I'm just telling you that Drew Barrymore is brilliant, and I'm forgetting the name of the man who is with her on that. Uh, ask me something else. I'm going to look his name up on the computer while we're talking so I can <laughs> give you a plug for him because okay. he is just wonderful. Mm-hmm. Any movies you've seen lately? You know, I've been so busy writing this book and uh, plugging it and being on TV and being on radio at Timothy Oliphant. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Just brilliant. Everywhere out of that man's mouth is just, this man deserves an Emmy so much, but everybody in it uh, is just incredible. The, the cast they put together, uh, Liv Houston, a brand new woman, I didn't know about her, playing their daughter, is brilliant. Skylar Gizondo, who plays, uh, they're both older than teenagers, but they're playing teenagers. Funny, funny young people. It, I love when Young people are funny when they find new young people to be funny. Mm-hmm. But I had not been to the movies lately because I've been too busy performing. Yeah. Well, Jeffrey, as always, it's it's such a pleasure to have you on. It's it, you've given us so much information. It's always something new that we find out. And uh, once again, Ella, be sure to go out and get the book. Everybody should listen. Uh, go ahead and uh, read that book and uh, get ready for Lucy next year. You said. Next year, yes, yeah. and uh, please have me back. Because, you know, I'll talk. We can talk about anything in show business. You know, I, I just love it. I just love it. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you on, Jeffrey, and I thank you so much for sharing with us. It is my pleasure. Good afternoon or good evening, wherever you happen to be, and thanks for listening, folks. And once again, we thank Jeffrey Mark for joining us here at On Screen and Beyond. It always is great to have him here. He comes up with some great stories. I mean, geez, John Lennon's uh, his assassination, he was there. And uh, all, just mind-boggling, all the things he was telling us. And, uh, you know, it's always good to hear him. And, of course, if you have a chance and you want to see him, he is going to be out on the East Coast coming up, and uh, we talked about those dates, so you can check those out. Also, check out his book. No matter where you are, you can find that one. You can go to Amazon and get that. Ella, that's the name of his book. And next year, catch his other book that's coming out, uh, the re-release of the Lucy book, when he's going to be adding more to it. Always something great to hear from him. Great stories all the time. And we thank Jeffrey Mark so much for joining us here at On Screen and Beyond. Well... That's it. We have a full slate of guests coming our way, and it's uh, just not going to stop. We're heading up to uh, five away now from 500 episodes of On Screen and Beyond and over 500 guests because uh, sometimes we had double guests. And uh, it's always great to have more more people join us. If you have a suggestion, go ahead and send it to me at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com. Love to hear from you. If you just want to say hi or whatever, just send me an email. I check them all out anyway, so... Uh, you know, I'll see what you have to say and uh, always appreciate it. If you're on Facebook, do me a favor. 
write a review or at least go in there and, uh, you know, let us know if you like the show because uh, the higher ratings it gets on iTunes, the more people hear about it and they sort of move things around. And I don't know how that whole thing works. But anyways, just go ahead and do that. that I appreciate that very much. And most of all, tell a friend. Tell them to go to onscreenandbeyond.com or go to iTunes, whichever. And uh, when you go there, go to the rerun section of On Screen and Beyond, and you will see every single episode right to our very first one that we ever had. Every one of those in the last 11 years is still up there. We've had some incredible guests each week. We hope you're enjoying these, and I hope you'll keep listening. Like I said, tell a friend and get the word out. So... That's it. That is a wrap for this week. So until next week, when we once again take you on screen and beyond, I'm Brian Zemrak. Take care. Uh-huh.